guys, it's Keith Jones from NBC Sports Philadelphia, and we're talking on the Tomahawk Roundup. All right, so what is going on, guys? This is Frank Zorowski here with the Tomahawk Roundup, and I am joined by Keith Jones of NBC Sports Philadelphia, color commentator for the Philadelphia Flyers. Keith, how are you today? Doing great, Frank. How's things going? Things are going great in Chicago, just during the NHL season, having some fun talking hockey. Yeah, that's, uh, this is the right time of year to be talking hockey. Things are starting to heat up throughout the league, and Looking forward to some uh, good runs here down the stretch and the playoffs right around the corner. Yeah, it's it's going to be a lot of fun with the playoffs, especially with the four four different divisions, different teams playing each other that normally wouldn't be, and it, it's going to be a wild ride to say the least. Yeah, and it's been such an interesting format with the amount of division games that you're playing. Uh, obviously, you're playing every game within your own division, but it's the number of times that you're facing the same opponent that has made some games especially early on seem like playoff series right and now i think guys are past the point of disliking one another to the point where they're getting tired of seeing one another (laughs) it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out uh, over the last 15 or 16 games here depending on what team you follow yeah exactly so for you anyways how has the nhl draft changed from when you were a player to becoming a broadcaster the, the draft itself? Yes. Uh, it's, uh, it's definitely different. I mean, we had 12 rounds when I, when I was uh, drafted, and I was drafted in the seventh round. Um, and it was not televised, obviously. I don't even know if the first round was. I don't think the first round was even televised back when I was drafted in 1988. So uh, there's a, there was a lot less hoopla around it. And if you were a late-round draft choice, you were uh, lucky enough to receive a phone call later in the day that uh, you had been selected by uh, a particular team. In my case, it was the Washington Capitals, and they just kind of told me, hey, you're not ready yet. Go to school, and let's see where you end up in four years from now. And that's kind of the way it played out. And back then, uh, unlike today, if you played four years of college, they still owned your rights. You did not become an unrestricted free agent. So I stayed all four years at Western Michigan, and then, uh, signed with the Capitals because I, you really had no choice, but I was thrilled to do it. You felt like you were a part of their organization because they followed you for four years and stayed in touch with you, but uh, there was not the option of going out there and doing what Adam Fox did and, and uh, refusing to sign with the team that drafted you and eventually ending up playing for the team that you dreamt of playing of or playing for when you were a kid, in Fox's case, the New York Rangers. Yeah, I mean, when you're, when you're talking about this, the, the whole NCAA eligibility, it's, it's really a different world than it was in the 80s when you're talking about choosing where to go. The team's had a lot more control. Yeah, but the, you know, one thing I, I will give the Capitals credit for was they helped me uh, find the right place to land as far as where I would develop the best uh, in a call in a college game, and uh, I I selected Western Michigan, and uh, so much of that decision came about because the Capitals felt like that would be a good place for me to develop, uh, where I would get probably a better opportunity because I was a late blooming type player uh, than playing for one of the bigger schools like Michigan or Michigan State at that, um, and it ended up being a really good decision, and they were quite helpful and kind of pushing me in the right direction and uh, giving me a few different schools to consider as well. But at the 
at the end of the day, I, I owe them a lot. Number one, for selecting me before I was in college out of junior B hockey and then uh, kind of guiding me from that point on until I eventually became a member of their team five years after uh, I was drafted. And that's and that's that's great that the Capitals were able to help you almost filter through your options is what I'm hearing from you. Yeah, it was a big part of it, you know, because uh, as a young person, you were, I really had no, I didn't even know where Kalamazoo was. I thought it was a uh, city that was made up. I had never <laughs> heard of it in my life, and and had never been there until the day I drove there for my uh, first initiation to what I was getting myself into, and. Uh, you sat there and kind of got uh, the the tour of the school and and everything that it had to offer, and that was the, the first time I had ever been to Kalamazoo, Michigan. So it ended up being something that changed the direction of my life, and I owe a lot to the entire college experience, but most importantly, the hockey part of it, because I was able to develop uh, all the things I needed to work on and get better in those departments and eventually be good enough to make the NHL. Because if I showed up at NHL camp after I was drafted, they would have laughed at me and sent me home. I had skinny arms and a fat gut, so I had a lot of work to do before I'd be ready uh, to give it a shot at the NHL level. No, so starting off professionally for you, you played a total of 14 games with the Baltimore Skipjacks. I mean, what was the environment like for you as a player in such an atypical market? It it was awesome because... There was a whole group of us that arrived at the same time. Uh, John Slaney, Byron Defoe, Olaf Kolzig. Uh, we had Steve Connawalchuk. We had Pat Peak. We had a whole bunch of guys that uh, had aspirations of playing in the National Hockey League, but had all come from different parts of the world and came together. And for me, it was a brief visit, uh, fortunately, uh, but it was under Barry Trotz as the head coach, who we know has had an extremely successful National Hockey League coaching career. Yeah. Um, but it was a great introduction to becoming a professional. Um, you know, I played the last six games of the regular season after my college season ended my, ended my senior year. And the Baltimore Skipjacks did not make the playoffs that year, so I was called up to the Capitals as an extra player. Uh, would have needed you know, the shuttle bus to crash if I was ever going to get in the lineup. There was <laughs> 10 or 12 guys ahead of me, so that was for experience. But it was valuable experience to watch and see what the guys put in as far as what their uh, preparation was and how hard they practiced. And, you know, the Capitals ended up losing that year in the first round to the eventual Stanley Cup champion Pittsburgh Penguins. And, in fact, the Capitals had a 3-1 series lead in round number one before the Penguins rallied back and, one in Game 7 on the back of a couple of nice Mario Lemieux points. Yeah. And the Penguins then rolled on and won the Stanley Cup after being at the brink of elimination early in that series. So it was a a good learning experience. And then shortly after that, the next season rolled around. I started in Baltimore for, I believe, the first eight games. Yeah. And then was called up to the NHL uh, after a game that I was minus seven. Uh, in Baltimore, I had uh, scored two goals. We lost ten to eight, Ooh. and I was a minus seven. I mean, that had never happened to me in my life, and that was the last game I played in Baltimore. Remarkably, I was called up the next day to play for the Flyers and or for the uh, Capitals in Calgary, and started my National Hockey League career uh, right then. 
And I think that's a nice transition into our next question. You know, you were uh, while you were with Washington in 94, a young man joined the team in the broadcast booth by the name of Joe Beninati. We all know him now as the famous voice of the Washington Capitals, but what was he like as a young broadcaster? I thought he was excellent. I thought he had a great grasp right from the start, and he was a guy that was not going to be outworked by anybody. He was... Uh, loaded with information, most of it uh, he obtained by being around and communicating with the players and taking notes and and uh, developing, you know, what would help him go on to have what has been an outstanding career. So work ethic, I think, was one of the biggest things that stood out to me with Joe. Um, he was also very personable. He was uh, became kind of an extension of the team. And I think he was uh, a guy that everybody uh, appreciated and felt like uh, was going to have a really good career. And now you look where he's at today. We're going back a number of years now, and he's still calling games for the Capitals. Yeah, and that's remarkable. And I like when you when you talk about the personable part, just knowing Joe personally, it really it, it speaks volumes that some things don't change, even when you're a young broadcaster to someone who's more seasoned in the field, that personability still stays constant. Yeah, you know, it's very important for him to have that type of relationship, and it's a little more difficult to do today than it was back then because uh, I think the players were more accessible back then, and especially under the circumstances that the the players are in over you know over the last year and a half here, where you're really not uh, communicating one on one. It's a lot of Zoom conversations and. That makes the job a little more difficult in right. circumstances. But hoping that uh, when things get back to normal, we can all uh, reconnect and get those uh, personal relationships started again. Yeah, so shifting back to your career, you played a gritty physical brand of hockey during your career. How did you come to develop that style of play? Yeah, you know, it's a really good question. I, I will tell, tell you this, and it's a good lesson for anyone that's trying to make it in professional sports or in whatever you know, line of work they're looking to get into. Uh, I love to play, but I always was pretty good at kind of looking and seeing what a team needed and trying to provide it in order to stay. So when I was called up to Washington, I if you looked at my numbers in the minors, yeah, I was a point producer, I was a goal scorer, I picked up assists, and I had very few penalty minutes. And I looked at the Capitals team and recognized that they were lacking uh, a disruptor, a, a player that could irritate the opposition and a player that didn't mind uh, dropping his gloves. Now, I say I didn't mind dropping my, my gloves. I didn't know if I minded dropping my gloves. I had never had a fight in my life, not through high school, uh, not uh, public school growing up, not with my friends. I had never once thrown a punch at another person until I put on a National Hockey League uniform. Didn't even have a fight in the minors. And I decided that I was willing to take some punches in the head in order to stay with the Washington Capitals. It was that important to me to reach my childhood goal that I would uh, try it and see if I could survive. And that's the first time that I ever fought. And all of it was predetermined based on something that I felt that that team needed. And in providing that, it would give me the opportunity 
to continue uh, to hang around and, and make a National Hockey League salary. But it wasn't about the money. It was about the pride that came with putting on an NHL uniform and playing in front of a full house and, and doing so, watching and feeling the reactions of the fans as I provided them something to cheer about and worry about and boo and cheer <laughs> all the things that go with uh, being a noticeable player when you're on the ice. And that's that's important, and I and I'm grasping that you're more of an adaptable player. Like a, you, you became almost uh, a Swiss Army knife in in a way. Where it's like if you need to go out there and produce points, you can produce points. But you're able to fill whatever role you need. And I think when we have a lot of specialized players in today's game, people could use a player who's like, "Hey, what role can I fill? How can I make the team better?" Rather than just going out individually. Yeah, and in doing so, you're giving yourself the best opportunity to stay and that's something that's it's not communicated to players and it, and really in the environment that we're in in the game today coaches are limited in how much they can ask you and give you a little kick and tap on the pants and say you know it's time to change the momentum in the game so to speak yeah uh, those days uh, are, are not uh, those things are not available to the coaches anymore um so it really comes from the inside. You have to look and say, you know, this this sport still allows you to play aggressively. Uh, it's still valued. And some teams don't have players that provide that. So are you willing to go out there and, you know, risk your own personal health? But uh, that risk is well worth the reward. And that's kind of how I looked at it. I had a great uh, Example given to me by Dale Hunter, who I played with in Washington, and I know Joe Beninati uh, would have great respect for. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dale t- told me once we were sitting at a my my kitchen table at the house in in Washington, and he he said, "Hey Jonesy, if somebody walked in here and you had five hundred thousand dollars sitting on your kitchen table, that person walked in, picked it up, and walked out of your house, what are you going to do?" And I said. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight him for it. And he said, that's right. So why don't you try doing that on the ice? Mm. And that was a, it was a, great, um, a great message that I, I carried with me my entire career. And even when I fought less as I became a little bit more valuable of a player, I still continued to, you know, cause issues for the opposition by trying to rattle their cage and stir in the pot and, and luckily, I had enough big, tough guys backing me up that appreciated uh, hanging out with me. It didn't irritate them. I irritated the opponents. <laughs> those guys would back me up and, and do their part to uh, to make the team more cohesive. And that's and that's important. Where the I like that analogy that he made about the the five hundred thousand dollars sitting on the table because that's what you're gunning for. It's not about the money, but it's about the money in a sense where it's like the money is part of the dream and you want to make the dream come true. Yeah, and that's it. And it's, it was never the motivating factor for me, but it is kind of neat. Like, it's kind of cool that you can, you know, you can make make money doing something you love to do. And it's like, for anyone who's, you know, no matter what field you're getting into, um, you know, it is nice to have a financial reward that kind of coincides with what you're doing. And uh, that is one of the great bonuses of being one of the few uh, professional athletes, and no matter what sport you play, that 
uh, is at the you know the highest level of their sport, and that's kind of a cool thing that you should have a lot of pride in. And that and that's that's incredible. I mean, when you when you you're part of that 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 elite group that's able to say I made it in the NHL and not just at one team but at many different teams and continuing on with your career after being traded to Colorado, your team took part in one of the most biggest and infamous brawls in hockey history, March 26, 1997. I talked with people on the Detroit side of the the Turtle Punch brawl, but I want to hear your perspective from the Avalanche side on the game. Dominated the Red Wings all season. We beat them the first three games, so we were three and zero. There was a lot of hype around it. They had not done anything to Claude Lemieux in the first three meetings of the season, and Scotty Bowman, being the brilliant man that he was, uh, waited for the last regular season meeting between the two teams. We were the top team in the league. We had won the cup the previous year, and I say we. I wasn't there when they won it. I was traded in November of that next season for Chris Simon, who, as you'll remember, was one of the toughest guys in the league. Yeah, uh, I could not do what Chris Simon did as far as dropping the gloves. So already you can see there was a little bit of a drop-off in how many tough guys we had on our team and how many tough guys, and I mean really tough guys, the Detroit Red Wings had. So we had won all three games. Both teams had stuck to playing hockey. And we were up 4-1. to one in this game that you speak of and we were dominating that game as well and with a 4-1 score the Detroit Red Wings took their opportunity to seek revenge and galvanize their team to the point where they came back and won the game beat us 6-5 in overtime and went on to win the Stanley Cup because of what they did in that game it was the single most important game and that Red Wings dynasty, which they were, uh, with the exception of the uh, Colorado winning another cup mixed in there with Dallas. Sure. Uh, but that was the turning point for the Detroit Red Wings. And many will talk of the Russian Five, and they were great players. And, of course, uh, tragic what happened with Konstantinov after they had won the Stanley Cup. Mm-hmm. They don't win that Stanley Cup without Brendan Shanahan being on their team. Uh, he was the guy that changed the complexion of the Detroit Red Wings because not only could he score, which he did in that game and uh, pretty much every other night in the league, he also could beat you to a pulp if necessary. And he was just one of many guys that could do that on that team. They were a very tough team. And that enabled their star players, their more skillful players, uh, thing because they were insulated with a lot of guys around them that uh, could fight. So I would tell you that the mistake that we made was brawling back because we weren't built for that. Uh, Patrick Waugh hurt his shoulder in that game. Mm-hmm. Yui Krupp hurt his back. Uh, so we had a couple of guys that uh, tried to battle on from that point but weren't not as uh, physically in, sh- in proper condition right. following the brawls. And Detroit fed off that and... It turned out to be a, a great moment for them, and you, you just have to give them a lot of credit for for recognizing the right time to try to make a difference. And another great example of how physicality changed the direction of two teams in that case. And in that particular year, it gave the Red Wings 
the advantage, and they went on to win the Stanley Cup and beat us out in round number two. I, I missed that second-round series. I blew my knee out against Ooh. Chicago in the first round. Um, so I, it's one of the biggest regrets of my hockey career that I was not able to play in that series and uh, tried to go out there and made, make a difference for the Avalanche at that time, but that was not to be. No, it, but you speak of the physicality and how differentiating it can be for two teams. It was almost like it was at a crossroads for both clubs. Yeah, it was at that time. I mean, I was. It was Detroit was built to, you know, to do that, and they they timed it perfectly. Darren McCarty did his thing. There was a couple of scuffles going on at the time, and it was the perfect moment. And uh, you know, I I was not there for the the hit from Lemieux on Draper the previous year in the playoffs. And the reaction from Detroit was one of uh, them being appalled by what happened. And they never felt like Lemieux regretted it happening and did not think that he did enough to apologize for that. But all Claude Lemieux did in his career was win. I mean, he was an incredible player as far as when performing during the playoffs. So it's not a a knock against it's just a real tip of the, uh, as Eddie O would say, the old hockey helmet for the Red Wings and the way that they, you know, mapped out a plan and executed it to perfection and ended up winning the Stanley Cup because of it. Yeah, and, and I agree with you on that. So transitioning to Philadelphia, you joined a star-studded lineup with guys like Rod Brindamore in, for the latter stages of your career. What did you take away from that experience, and how did you pass along your knowledge to the next generation at the time to guys like Simone Gagne? It's a, it's a really good question. I, when I played in Colorado, I had the, the privilege to play with Peter Forsberg and Valerie Kaminsky when, when Claude Lemieux was out. And my normal line mates were Joe Sackick and Adam Deadmarsh. So I was very uh, much in a position of benefiting because of my style of play and getting the opportunity to play with star players because I could produce enough offensively, which you have to do in that position, but I also could provide enough of a distraction that players on the opposition would not uh, be going after them. Uh, And that served me well when I arrived in Philadelphia because I jumped right on a line with Eric Lindros and John LeClaire and spent the entire season with them. Um, that was a pretty cool experience. You go from Forsberg and Sackick to Lindros and LeClaire, and you're thinking, this is pretty darn cool because these guys are awesome. And Forsberg played the game really physically, and Lindros took it to a whole other level. Uh, he was a guy that, uh, you know, opponents did not necessarily want to jump in there in the face-off circle and take a draw against the Big E because he was going to plow you over. <laughs> He could overpower you, and he was one of the hardest-working practice players I'd ever seen in my life. I mean, I, I, I never knew that about him prior to arriving and then watched just how much he worked on his game, and that was one thing that um, I, I was very impressed with. John LeClaire was the exact same, and you could see why they had so much success together. And uh, we, we had a good mix on that team, too. Capable of winning a cup, but couldn't find a way to do it. Mm-hmm. But um, it was definitely a good experience. And then we did have young players arriving on the scene, and I had that same situation when I was in Colorado as well. And 
really felt like there was just prior to my departure from Colorado that I was going to be leaving right around that time because Alex Tangay and Milan Hayduke had arrived and I was watching and Chris Drury and I was watching them go in practice and I was like, ah, that top six uh, spot I have might be going away here. In yeah. So when I landed in Philly, I was glad to have that, but also I was never the type of player that wanted to push young players down. I always felt it was important to build them up and make them feel like they were a part of the team and I think if you asked any of those young guys, including Simone Gagne or Justin Williams, uh, they would uh, be appreciative of things that were passed on to them, but more importantly, the fact that they were made to be a part of the team. It wasn't about, you know, initiating players and making them feel like uh, they were lower than you. It was about making them feel like they were a big part of things that were happening. And I always felt like anyone who put on your jersey should be made to feel like they were an important piece of the puzzle, and I think that served me well, as at least as a teammate for, for other players that were joining an organization or the ones that were already there. And that's critically important. I like what you said. You know, It's not about putting the players down. It's about bringing them into the fold, essentially. And especially when you've got a younger player, you know, like a Simon Gagne, who was, co- who was coming out of wherever he came out of, now, now it's your job to welcome him with open arms and say, "Hey, you're one of us now. You're 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 a brother to us." And anytime you put on that jersey, that's like your family crest. Uh, going back to like a, a medieval knights warrior analogy, if you will. But I, I really like that that type of mindset that you have, uh, Keith, because when you bring that into the the play. Everybody's everybody's there to win together. It's a team sport, and you're trying to build off of each other. Yeah, and 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 doing those things properly, you benefit. The team benefits. Uh, it's really a no lose situation. I think there's some people that are more concerned about losing their job to that player, but I, I never looked at it that way, and I, I don't look at it that way in broadcasting either. Whenever somebody comes in and it's someone that's, you know, looking to see if they enjoy it, you know, trying it, especially former players. Um, I always try to make sure that I provide them an an environment where it's giving them a good opportunity to be able to do what they need to do. And um, examples of that are just sharing the mic and making sure that um, you're not hogging it, that you're not, as you know, being in the business, when one person is talking, that second voice does not work. That's Mm -hmm. noise. So you have to allow the other person to give their opinion and and then uh, counter that opinion in a respectful way that maybe you're right, maybe you're not, but it is an opinion. So um, I think there's a lot that goes into being a good teammate in broadcasting, just like there's a lot that goes into being a good teammate when you're part of a team, whatever your professional sport is, or whatever your sport is. Um, those are valuable lessons that you uh, you get when you play in a team sport. And in a sport like hockey, non-team players were chased out pretty early. Uh, they, it was not a good environment for them because uh, hockey's always been about the team first. And individual types sneak through the cracks sometimes, but often they are uh, they find other hobbies when they're younger because it's not something that is uh, tolerated in uh, in hockey. 
And that's and that's so important because yeah, you may be you may be a great player, you may be a, a flashy scorer, but at the end of the day, what are you going to bring to the team that's gonna help the team win? It's not just about you. And I think when you're talking about broadcasting, sharing the mic, you know, I learned that younger when I was like what, fifteen, sixteen, about sharing the mic, you know, how do you how do you bring other people into the fold and understand that, yeah, they may have an opinion that's different, but, you know, you want to be as respectful and as courteous and kind as you can be. Yeah, all, all really important things. And I, I don't, uh, I, I, I know there's certain shows that uh, do a lot of arguing back and forth, and I know some people find that entertaining, and that's great, but there has to be a level of respect. And that's something mm-hmm. that, um, you know, when people get angry, they can, all of a sudden they can lose sight of some of the respect that goes along with it. But it, it doesn't happen that often. Most people in this business are, are there to entertain and at the same time answer the questions. And there's nothing worse than a non-answer. So as, as a young person like you that's asking questions, uh, you want an answer back. It's, and it's often yes or no. Uh, but answer it first and then provide your reasons why after. But don't leave people wondering uh, if you answered it or not, because that's uh, a non-answer doesn't work. Answer the question. That's that's your job, and uh, allow the person standing beside you to answer the question as well, and not interrupt that person if that answer is not going in the direction that you want it to go. Precisely, Keith. Before we head out today, is there anything else you want to add for our audience in the U.S., Canada, and Europe? No, I just I, I think that. Uh, I think that, and especially for someone like yourself, I think it's great that you're doing this at a young age. I had zero experience in television other than answering questions after a, a game, whether it was a win or a loss. I mean, I had that experience, but I had, not, I had zero experience about asking questions to a player that's just coming off the ice and asking questions that, quite frankly, I might already know the answer to, but I have to ask it in a way that doesn't make it seem like I know the answer mm-hmm. uh, and all those things uh, took a long time for me to develop and for anyone that's thinking about getting into the, the business of broadcasting do it as much as you can do it and get all the reps that you can get and uh, listen to the answers that are being given to you don't don't just try to you know drive the questions home that you have you know preconceived ideas about listen to the answer and sometimes another question can follow as long as you're paying attention to what the answer is to that question. And that's happened to me so many times, Keith, where it's like, okay, I, I think this interview is going in one direction and then somebody drops something and they're like, whoa, we can go a completely different direction and that's okay because yeah, that changes yeah. everything. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. And that comes with experience because you're the more you do, the more you're you're learning as you go and it's, it's really important to if I was to look back on my early tapes of doing television, uh, I would want to crawl underneath uh, my table here in front of me and, and not uh, pop my head up. So repetition is the key, and just because it doesn't go well the first few times, just keep at it if it's something that you're passionate about, and, and hopefully you find your niche. Try, try again. Keith Jones, NBC Sports Philadelphia. Keith, thank you so much for the time. You got it, buddy. Good job, pal.